guys, welcome to the All Our Mothers podcast. My name's Miggy, I'm your host and the founder of All Our Mothers. We're a brand new platform building communities online and in real life while celebrating the diversity of motherhood and promoting a much more inclusive narrative. So, let's get started, shall we? two of the All Our Mothers podcast and I'm so happy today to be joined by a guest who is a mother of two. She's from central London where she lives with her husband and her two daughters. She is a design showroom manager and she's 28 years old. She's going to be talking to us about her experiences of postnatal depression and a topic that's very close to our hearts and that's representation and diversity in children's brands. Here goes. Africa, thank you so much for joining the show today. Really appreciate you spending the time. Thanks for having me. <laughs> of course, of course. Really excited to talk to you for a number of reasons. If you could just tell everybody a little bit about your background, your childhood. That's such a flippant way of saying, tell us about your childhood. <laughs> you know, just a, just a brief overview of who Africa is and, you know, where you're from and what your family setup looked like. Okay, I grew up in a really busy household, actually. So I grew up with five other siblings. I grew up in a household of six children. Really busy, I guess is the word. My mum raised us alone for a number of years until she got married. And I guess I have these great memories of visiting my dad and his extended family. So my dad's actually got seven other children, wow. believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, so long summers and obviously the odd weekends as well were spent at my dad's house um, with my I call it extended siblings, I should just say siblings. Um, but yeah, just a really busy, filled childhood. Um, my maternal grandma as well, she lives in West Yorkshire. And I'd say probably about a third of my life was spent up there. We're still really close to the day. And yeah, I'm the second eldest of my parents' children together. So I'm the eldest girl, which is basically the eldest anyway, because we all know that elder brothers are a bit useless until they have their own children. Um, so yeah. It was. It was a. It was a busy upbringing. There was always a lot going on, um, and we weren't actually particularly close, although we're very close knit now, which is quite nice. I think that you find with larger families, particularly poorer larger families, and I guess most larger families are, you get in a bit of survival of the fittest mode. So I found like um, with all of my siblings, all of our best friends were only children, and I don't think that was by chance. You kind of gravitate towards the kind of people who you're a little bit envious of their lifestyle and vice versa I guess they must have loved the hustle and bustle of our house and and we love the peace and serenity of theirs and being able to do things and actually getting that kind of one-on-one -on -one time but um it was overall a very good childhood as I say now we're all kind of very very close my siblings and I we meet every single Sunday we have a dinner at my brother's house so it is it was it was a good childhood yeah oh that that sounds so lovely I'm, I have actually seen your Sibby Sundays posts <laughs> Sundays, <laughs> which just look look really like a really great family day it is lovely you mentioned your your maternal grandma being from Yorkshire yeah can you tell us a little bit more about your roots in general yeah of course so my mum's mixed race and um, this grandma in particular is half Irish half English and She's just always been a trailblazer. I've got a lot of admiration for my grandma. My grandma met my granddad in the 60s um, at a time where it was unseen to date a black guy. And it was almost like a very sort of political statement. And she fought through that. 
and I kind of always think now I I think of how Yorkshire is compared to London now imagine it back in the 60s yeah my gosh and she just didn't care and it, it wasn't so much that oh I, I worry what the public think but I'm just in love with this guy she was very much like no I don't care and uh, this is who I love this is the father of my children my grandma's had a tough life actually I think that kind of adds to her character she had children very young she had three kids before she was 21 and she grew up really, really poor, but she just always kind of put her kids first. I won't dwell on it too much, but my grandma was in a horrific house fire when she was, I think, 21. My mum was the, my mum was about two. And as a result, my grandma's actually burnt head to toe. Her whole skin is burnt. She's lost her hearing as a result. She was hospitalised for over a year, um, which obviously had a big impact on the family. So she's not actually, well, my granddad's longer with us, but she wasn't actually with my granddad. Um, until the end but she is just the most resilient woman you could imagine and every time where I kind of feel like oh it's getting a bit too much and I compare our lives in a parallel I think I really do have nothing to complain about she's an amazing woman well yeah she sounds incredible really incredible Mm. so the Caribbean part of you that we have spoken about already and I'm quite excited about Mm. as well (laughs) maybe you could tell us a bit about that yeah, of course. So my my mum is half Grenadian, um, half English, as I said. And my dad, both of his parents are from Grenada. It's not actually Grenada. I'll get murdered for saying this. It's Karakou, which is a small island in oh, Grenada. Really? Yes. Yeah. We share the same passports, wow. but yeah. That's amazing. I've never met anybody who's actually from Karakou. <laughs> yeah, I should definitely specify that it's Karakou, not Grenada. Um, so yeah, I've got three grandparents that are from Karakou and uh, tiny islands I think it's 13 square miles um, but yeah just a beautiful place to come from and I didn't really know anything about it until a lot later in life but um, I kind of feel like that knowledge came at the right time. Let's fast forward a little bit then you're married now and as uh, we mentioned in the intro you have two gorgeous children maybe you could tell us a little bit about finding your Mr Right. <laughs> I definitely did find Mr Right I know it's a cliche but I'll just let him have this one bit of glory because <laughs> I don't say it too often. But um, yeah, a- anybody who knew me before I met my husband would say it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, and I-, I do agree. He He's everything that I struggled with. He's brought that balance about. Um, there's been no change in me as such, which is a good thing, I think. Um, I haven't needed to change, but he just literally brings out the best in me. Puts things into focus as well. Um, which is hard when you're someone who looks in the details so much, you kind of need to take a step back sometimes. Um, but yeah, just the the dream life partner, for me anyway, for everything that I want out of life, um, we seem to be aligned, which is fantastic. We met at work, actually. We met about 11 years ago at work, and I was engaged to someone else. <laughs> so I literally was at a time in my life where I wouldn't even raise my head if a guy said hello to me. I'd like squeak um, and keep it moving. And... I think it was about four years later that we met again on a night out. And I kind of, again, didn't really speak to people. I was single then. And um, of course, he came up to me. Remember me? We sweat together. And yeah, I think it was just his confidence and his humour that won me over. Um, And yeah, we've been together since. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. So you have two children, the eldest being two years old and the youngest eight months. Were you planning to have both of those babies 
Yeah, absolutely. We can't afford to have kids without plumbing them, to be honest. It's one of those things. We called Israel her name, actually, because of like a sort of play on words, the chosen one. We just wanted her for so long. We'd spoken about when the time is right and those things never happen. So we put a figure and it's never really about money, but it kind of is with children. We put a figure on what it was that we wanted to earn. And we said that when we get there, we'll try for our first child. Um, we had a lot of issues with conception. Jamel had a really serious case of either mumps or measles. And I remember when he was an adult and one of the main uh, side effects of that is infertility. So we kind of were always not sure if it would be something that we could do. Um, I've got polycystic ovarian syndrome, which again, many women do. I think it's one in four. We were well aware that we may not be able to have children the way we wanted. So we'd actually discussed more than openly the adoption route. Um, and that was something that was on our mind. I think that was also why it came down to finances, because for adoption, you need to have a spare room. Um, obviously, if it's your own children, you make it work. So we had put a lot of thought into it. Um, and Israel came definitely at the right time. It was such a blessing. Um, and then, although Israel's two now, she will be three in February. So we planned for it to be an exact two-year age gap. We're just over that by, I think, like four weeks. So yeah, there were both plans. Um, I'm both perfect for me. <laughs> <laughs> so you're 28 now, so you were around 26 when you had Israel. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like, becoming a mother for the first time? What kind of notable feelings that you remember or any huge changes that you remember? It was awful. <laughs> it's so sad. You know what? I wanted to be a mum all my life. You could, Even if you meet someone I haven't seen in years, they'll say, Africa wanted to be a mum and I think I'd built that up in my mind so much that I just had such an unrealistic expectation not of my child just of what was expected of me um also I think that I I kind of look back at my childhood and I look back at the time when my mum was a single mum and when she was married and in my mind and of course it's exaggerated I remember my mum as being this like all singing all dancing Prit stick glue like get everything all the creative things done that's how I remember her before marriage and that was like the, the goal for me I want to be that mum the mum that everybody wants to be their mum and you know does the sleepovers and things like that I had such a strong clear vision in my mind and um, that I guess it was so much harder when the realization hit me that although I have a lot of those factors in my everyday life that isn't the kind of mum that comes naturally to me and I would say it was as early as so I planned we did hypnobirthing with Israel I planned not to have uh, an epidural or, or any drugs that were unnecessary in my mind and a lot went wrong in the birth and I would say when I had the epidural administered is when I knew that things were going to go wrong and I don't blame that on the epidural at all and um, I, I don't have anything against epidurals in hindsight but that was the moment where I felt my vision of motherhood slipping away, which is really sad because I, I kind of, let's say that didn't happen. I might have gone a bit easier on myself, but I kind of just felt like everything is going wrong. Um, and I never really caught up with that or got in front of that feeling. So it kind of just snowballed. We did hit the birth in on the recommendation of a friend. I think it was about three to four hundred pounds at the time. And we scraped that together. Like we, we literally saved for that soon as we found out we were pregnant we made it happen so we went down to the classes it was over a couple of weeks and at the time I was suffering really bad from anxiety and it just really helped it it put things into perspective it gave me coping mechanisms that I still use now if I have a panic attack so the hypnobirthing in itself 
I would recommend to anyone who's able to do that. Um, even if it's something you can't afford, it's things you can read up on. It really gave my husband as well a sense of authority at the birth. Because I think a lot of men struggle with, okay, what do I do here? So I found that really empowering for my husband as well, that he knew how to calm me down um, in the process. But yeah, fast forward to the birth, everything went wrong. Uh, I was 11 days over. I knew I needed to be induced. And that is just so against hypnobirth. And so I'd already gone in with such kind of heightened anxiety. Um, and I don't know if you know about when you're induced, but they try the weakest method first and they have to let that run its course before they go on to the next thing. So in total, I was in 55 hours of labor with Israel. I went in on the Tuesday. She was oh, it was horrific. She wasn't here until late on Thursday. Um, but in between that was just, sort of like a, a soul-destroying two days. And I think that really undid everything. Well, it didn't really undo everything we learned because my husband stayed calm throughout all of that. And I don't think he'd have been able to had it not been for the hypnobirthing. In the end, we went for forceps, um, which is almost more traumatic. Well, I've not had a cesarean, I can't say that. But it's kind of almost more traumatic because you're, you're so conscious of everything. And you've got to the stage where I actually crowned Israel myself I'd, I'd done all the pushing I'd got to that stage but too much time had passed and um, and she just wasn't joining us when she should have so we went for four steps in the end I'll never forget when they took me down to surgery I had an eye mask on which was on top of my head and that was something from hypnobirthing um in the run-up to the birth and I just pulled it over my eyes and they said no take it off you've got to stay with us I said I don't want to be here this is not what I have planned and I just put it over my eyes and the next thing I remember was just the next day um, in bed with this baby, which is apparently mine, um, but there was just no connection. So yeah, it, it was really sad. I, um, because of my own relationship with my mum, which is a bit strained, I saw this as my way of redoing it. And again, I think that added to the pressure, which doesn't help. From then on, it was just a bit of a downward spiral, unfortunately. After Israel, that's when really your postnatal depression started. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've, I've mentioned, because I obviously I blog about it, I've always had spells of depression in my life. I'm very aware of what a down day is as opposed to depression. Um, and I know when I'm really suffering. But I'd say, yeah, from the moment that I first held her, which wasn't straight away, which doesn't help, obviously, I, um, I knew that this wasn't how I was supposed to be feeling. There wasn't an affinity there. Um, and I remember going home thinking, can we just stay in the hospital? Um, which again is not a really good sign, is it? I, I think I was well aware that I was safer in the hospital with the care of the midwives and the doctors than I would be at home. And then can you maybe just tell us, for those who aren't really aware of postnatal depression, can you tell us a little bit about how it manifested itself for you? Yeah, I mean, it's different for everyone. So I'd hate for someone to listen to this and think, oh, I don't identify with that, so I may not have this. If you have a doubt, please go and speak to your doctor. But for me, it was just the lack of drive to do anything. Um, I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to clean. I didn't want to wash. But most importantly, it's not that I didn't want to. I had no desire to do it. Um, but most importantly, I didn't want to console Israel. I, I didn't see myself as that person who could be the difference in making her feel happier temporarily by a cuddle or speaking to her. Um, and it was just really, really tough just to give an example, I, I developed a urine infection, which is obviously very common. Um, but it's because I would not go to the toilet while my husband was at work. I didn't want to move. 
and so I wouldn't drink. And if I needed to go, I'd just stay in the same area and not go. Um, and as soon as my husband came through the door, I'd hand her over and then do what I needed to do. Um, it was it was a really awful time. And it makes me so sad because I look back and I think I was I was robbed, and I I kind of robbed myself as well. Um, but it's not something that you can. It's not really something you can change while you're in it. It's a really hard one. I guess the turning point for me was the diagnosis. I didn't actually realise what was going on. I just thought I'm a horrible person. I don't deserve this child. Um, and I remember my healthcare visitor coming to visit and saying, um, I was really awful to my health visitors at the time. I used to be so rude to them. Surprised they kept coming. Um, and I remember her saying to me, how's it going? And I was like, not very great. What, what do you think? I'm, I'm sure, you know, I'm sat here. I'm sure you can see I've not done anything a few days. You can see the state of my house. It's not going great. And she said, um, how often are you talking to Israel? I said, talking to who? She said, Israel. I said, she's a baby. And she said, Africa, it's so important that you talk to her. I said, I'm not going to talk to someone who doesn't know what I'm saying. And she said, I need you to try it for two weeks. I need you to talk to her the way you would if someone dropped their baby off with you. And I, I did that. And oh my goodness, it was it was the turning point. Yeah, I am. Um, I realised that I was not doing anything actively to build a bond with my child, and just those small things, talking to her, laughing, singing, all the things that that are really difficult to do, really quite embarrassing to do, if you dwell on it too much. And I now appreciate why they're so crucial. And so. With Ezra, you had a really different experience. What was the birth story with Ezra like? Before we planned Ezra, my husband kind of needed to know that we wasn't going to go down that route again, um, which is hard to say, but I think he was waiting for me to be in a much stronger place mentally, but also to know that the birth wasn't going to be a trigger. So I kind of said to myself, okay, regardless, even if I'm feeling how I felt with Israel, now that I have the power of hindsight, I just have to do what I did when I, you know, like spoke to her for those two weeks. I'm going to have to fake it. So in my mind, I always had a plan B of how I was going to cope with it. Um, but luckily, I just didn't need to. Um, still had really bad days, but I would credit that to depression as opposed to postnatal depression because I had that immediate bond with Ezra. But in terms of birth, okay, so both babies were overdue by um, 11 days, which is mad, both exactly 11 days. Um, and I remember the anxiety coming back of, I'm going to have to get induced again. And this is the starting point. I can't do it. We planned to go in on the day for it to be induced. And that morning, my waters broke. I could not believe it. They say it's a bit of a myth that you see it on films, etc., and that it never really happens. So yeah, I woke up that morning and my waters had broken. My sister, the plan was for her to collect Israel from nursery. We were going to drop her at nursery as normal. She's at nursery all day. My sister was going to collect her. So I could feel my contraction starting, but I didn't want to tell my husband because I didn't want to get him stressed out. And I thought, this could be another 55 hours. So just keep it to yourself for a little bit. So I got up and got everything ready, got the bag ready for Israel. Obviously, my baby bag was by the door ready. And um, then my contraction started coming on thick and fast. So I woke him up. So I said, look, I don't actually think we can get Israel to nursery. I think this is going to be a really, really quick one. He's like, no, you're going to be fine. These things take time. I said, no, I, like, I literally can't. So we flew downstairs. Um, we live on the sixth floor. Flew downstairs. I called my sister and I said, um, 
My sister's called Safari, by the way. I said, Safari, I'm really sorry. I'm going to need you to not step into work. I knew she'd be at like the door. Um, I need you to turn around and go to the hospital. She works very close to the hospital, which is great. So didn't my sister literally physically turn around? She got hit by a bus. Oh, my goodness. I not believe it. Two seconds after, I had a member of the public call me on her phone to say, don't panic, your sister's been hit by a bus. Um, it wasn't as bad as it sounds, but you don't know that till you oh. see them. Um, so she was so close to the bus that it literally just threw her a little bit. Um, she had to have physio and things like that, but nothing was broken. There was nothing internal going on, which is amazing. But you can just imagine what that did to the whole family. I jumped on the bus in the wow. end. I jumped on the bus, went straight to the hospital, let my husband take Israel to nursery, fully contracted on the bus, by the way. Um, my husband checked in on my sister, uh, who actually got dropped off at the same hospital as me, and um, came back just in time. So the total, from from my water's breaking, uh, my labour was just under four hours. So, yeah, really a different experience, but also extremely eventful. Extremely eventful, yeah. <laughs> like, testament to your strength uh, to even face that again after... 55 hours the first time around and and all of the difficulties that you had my gosh I don't know what I would have done if it was the same thing (laughs) you kind of just have to think there's no way it can be the same again yeah exactly and I guess that's the thing you want to have you know this these beautiful children um, and that's what matters more I guess Yeah. yeah yeah It does. It completely outweighs it. I didn't get the water bath I wanted because there was not enough time to put the water in the bath. So there was about one inch of water by the time I gave birth. But it was amazing. It was it was one of those births that you hear about. And I genuinely said straight after to my husband, I'd do that again now if I could. It was so lovely to be in control of it as well. Um, to just have the gas and air so you're aware of what's going on. Um, but a, a very, very different experience. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about something that you share a lot with your online audience, which is um, the passion that you have for representation. As the mother of two black girls, what is your drive there? Why why do you talk you know so much on your Instagram by the way if you're not already following Africa you can at at the vitamin Mm -hmm. z project thank you highly recommend that you follow her um but yeah maybe you can tell us a little bit about why you are doing so much amazing stuff by the way thank you um, advocating for representation Uh, you know what I just I just think it's so poor it's just not good enough I mean, it's so easy as an adult to be like, oh, I I can take the daily microaggressions and I can take my workplace being like this and I can take passers-by on the bus being like that. But now that I've birthed these two children, I am so aware that I brought them into this world and I made the choice to bring them into a less than perfect world. And that was for our benefit. That was, you know, so that we could have the pleasure of having children and I kind of feel like if I'm not doing something to differ the experience that I had then I'm doing something wrong so I mentioned that my mum was mixed race um is mixed race sorry and so I don't think my mum ever fully got it um through no fault of her own but my mum suffered a lot of racial abuse growing up because she grew up in Yorkshire um, in a very small town as I said and my mum was was great, but I think she just always knew that we weren't going through anything half as bad as what she went through. So we never really spoke about it. Um, 
and I never had, you know, I always had friends at school. It's, this is not a sob story of being bullied because of my race or anything like that. But I just remember wanting to assimilate so much. And much to my dad's dismay, my dad is an idol rasta. And I remember the day I first relaxed my hair. I think it actually broke his heart. And that's not an exaggeration. Um, he didn't mind we didn't have dreadlocks. But I think that was such a total step away from everything that he was about. And I understand that now as a parent. I was saying to my husband just yesterday, if Israel cut her hair, I, I just take it so personally. She cut her hair, she relaxed her hair. And, and I think that it's more now, with hindsight, me understanding all the factors that added to me wanting to change so much and making sure that they're not about for my children. Um, and as parents of young kids, okay, so they're both under three, you have the opportunity to put them in a little bubble but I'm trying to widen that bubble. And if there's no reason why there isn't a space for black people in that bubble, then I will challenge it. Um, and quite often there's never a reason, a valid reason anyway, why we shouldn't be in a space. Um, and I kind of feel like, you know what, if you enjoy following my family and you enjoy, I say follow not as an Instagram, I say like following along our journey. And if you're invested in our experiences, then you don't just get to look at the nice pictures. You must understand the full picture. And there's a lot that goes behind the scenes. There's a lot that, that adds to our heavy discussions in the evenings. You know, if, if I had boys, I'd probably be even more of an advocate, to be honest, because I kind of think that black boys have got it worse at the moment. Um, but having girls, I just think that it's my absolute right to speak up in a lot of things. For small brands especially, I've been an advocate for a long time, not just of small brands for the sake of it. I'll only buy what I like. Um, obviously, it's our hard-earned money. But I then think for these brands to do absolutely nothing to be inclusive, it's kind of been a shift of late where I'm just not on board with it. Um, and, and I think it's only my duty to speak out so that other people are aware of it who may not have otherwise thought of it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of the ethos, I guess, for all our mothers. I mean, it's so important that we see more representation in a wider spectrum and it's just lacking in so many areas and for the people who aren't following you already maybe you can say just a little bit about the things that you do um in order to try and I guess break the the mold a little bit I was really uh, keenly following along during Black History Month when you were you were actually highlighting some books with black figures as central characters I thought that was really important um what kind of other things are you doing? Yeah, so we do a lot with the books. Um, I will not buy a book. If it features a, character, a main character um, that's a person and it's not a black or a black person or a minority, I won't buy it. Um, it's as simple as that. It means I'll buy books on trucks and things like that and numbers. Um, but there's no space for that in our library, unfortunately. I know when Israel goes to school, she will get all of the most popular books. She'll, she'll read everything, um, but I know that the representation won't be there, so that's why I can be so extreme as to say, if there's a main character that isn't a minority, I won't buy it. I want Israel to look around her room, her walls, and feel immersed in that. I remember reading books that were even beautiful books. I'm talking like my favourite book going up is Alice in Wonderland, and I kind of thought she was this just magical creature with like long flown blonde hair and I felt so distanced from her and I know it was just based on her appearance. 
And as I say, that was my favourite book growing up. Um, but a lot of the books that I had, my dad was quite good for um, representation in books. He always made sure we had a good selection. But I want Israel to know that she isn't the minority in our bubble. Um, and I want her to know that this is the norm and that you will have the amazing opportunity to meet people of different races, backgrounds and cultures at nursery. But it shouldn't be the other way around. Um, I feel like a lot of parents just feel like they have to pedal what the school is peddling. But if you don't start at home, it, your children won't get it. Yeah, definitely. I think it's also not being conscious as well, yeah. which is why I, I guess like my next question to you is what the reaction of mothers has been to your advocating for representation, and particularly mothers who aren't of colour is it a warm reception that you're getting are you finding that you're making mothers aware of a need to be more inclusive when they're thinking about the the products they're buying for their children so I'm, I'm very aware that I have a relatively small following but I'm in a really lucky position where I would say that 90% of my following are like-minded mums and um, from all different walks of life different age children different backgrounds but very like-minded um, which is so lovely for me. And I've found a different response from four different groups in particular. So personal friends that obviously still follow along on my Instagram. Now that I've got rid of my personal one, um, I got rid of my personal one because I was finding, I was just posting silly futile pictures on that. And then everything I cared about and was really excited to check back in on was on this account. So I've had a huge range of response from personal friends and fellow mums on Instagram small business owners in particular, um, but even my mum as well. So I say with my friends, I think it was the hardest for me to swallow that I knew that they were engaging in what I was putting out there and discussing, but it still wasn't becoming a conversation in our spare time together. Um, and that can be really hard. I think for any mum, regardless of what's important to you, it's a really hard realisation when you're Friends don't have children, and so you can't identify in conversations that are now important to you. I think that's hard for any mum. But because these were issues that were becoming so important to me, it became a bit more, I think, of a stumbling block for me that I couldn't have these wider discussions that I was having freely with other mums, particularly mums who weren't of colour. I found it difficult that I couldn't also engage in those conversations with my friends. But the response on Instagram in particular has been, on a whole, really, really heartwarming. Um, it, you know, I, the majority of people who reach out to me don't have black children, to be honest, or kids that are a minority, but they're just aware of it. Um, and I think it takes a lot to message a black mum, to be honest, if you don't have black kids. I really do. Because a lot of people have said to me, oh, I thought about this for a long time before I wrote it. And I'll say, Why? If I proofread everything, well, for one, I wouldn't have half the spelling mistakes I wrote on Instagram. But, you know, you, you probably wouldn't put out there what is important to you at the time, if that makes sense. And um, I've had a really heartwarming response. A lot of people just saying, you know, thank you for, for making me aware. And um, now that you've made me aware, I open a catalogue, for example. And it's right there in my face that there's no diversity. I had a friend who just got married even. She was flicking through a wedding magazine and she tagged me in a, a little video to say, Africa, there's been nobody who isn't white. But, but any other race, I've not seen this one wedding magazine. Um, so I love that it's made people a lot more conscious. I came under a lot of fire, actually, because a small business wrote back to me and said, um, I think they were 
playing devil's advocate, they said, so what do you do if you're a small business owner in Cornwall and uh, you live in a predominantly white area and you're, so I had said to a small business and they'd said, oh, my kids don't have, my kids have only got white friends and we just use my kids' friends for pictures. And I said, well, maybe your kids should have more than white friends. And then someone else jumped off the back of that and said, what do you do if you live in Cornwall and there's not a lot of, and it's kind of like, look, if you're fighting so hard to justify why your friendship pool is so small, then I'm not here for that conversation. I'm not here to police who you're friends with. I'll be honest with you. I've got four best friends. Three of them are white. My kids, both my kids' godmothers are white. It's, it's not a thing of sticking to your own. I'm very well aware that your environment that you grow up plays a big part in who you can have as your friends. Um, but it's more the fact that you will have children of colour within your environment and you choose to not cast them, for example, as opposed to just using your kids' friends. Why aren't you doing what any other business professional would do and hold a cast in that's more diverse? It's obviously something that's not important to you. So I came under a bit of fire for being quite so blunt and saying that your children shouldn't only have white friends. Um, but I stand by that, sorry. The way that that mother is thinking is so it's so limited think in context of the world and try and yeah show your children what is out there in the world one day they might leave Cornwall and my goodness they're gonna have such a shock <laughs> so hopefully they can come back but you know <laughs> yeah no it, it's a hard one I had a, a lot of um I had yeah I will say I had a lot of negative feedback from that but it is something I stand by I am um, I just feel like these are not parents who also have uh, books from all different minorities on their bookshelves they don't so why aren't you using that aspect for example you know if if it's that you live in an area where there's not a lot of um, other races or diversity what are you doing to make sure that your child still gets that because what I found as an adult then is that I then work with these people who've never had to be in a meeting with a black person before and let's say for example you're you're sticking to your guns about something these are the first people to say, oh, you've been very aggressive. You've been intimidating. I read something this morning that said, am I being intimidating or are you intimidated? And that stuck with me all day. I can't help how you feel. If you've been raised in such a tiny pool of things that your mind jumps to a conclusion, um, when someone who doesn't look like you doesn't agree with your opinion, there's not a lot I can do for you. I can only wish that when you were younger, you were put around more people, you know? Let's talk a little bit about your future, Africa. How are you planning to have more children now that you had this beautiful second experience with Ezra? Oh, I would love to have more. My husband wants to have three children. I really want to have five. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just love my sibling Sunday. I want to pass that on. Um, but on a serious note, yeah, so we've agreed to have three. Um, but because we spoke so much about adoption before we knew that we could conceive naturally, that's still on the cards for us. Um, and my husband is more than happy to have three and then adopt. And that gives us a breathing space as well. We'd never adopt babies. And um, it's not for us that the children look like ours or that we've got them from birth because we've had that experience already. And um, so we are so open to adoption. And it's something that we talk about when the girls are maybe like eight or 10, that we would hopefully adopt siblings of a similar age. Um, but yeah, definitely, we would like to have one more child of our own if that can't happen then we would just go straight down the adoption route in a few years. Yeah, beautiful. I guess, and final question. Um, maybe you could tell us what your favourite thing about motherhood has been so far. I have to say 
is probably the like-minded company. It's, it's really funny. You'll know this as a black woman. We always say in our community, like, oh, uh, your parents can't be your friends. You know, and we kind of like we're jealous of our English friends growing up that they kind of seem to be best friends with their parents or could just be really casual with them. But I can honestly tell you, if I was their age or if they were my age, my girls would be my absolute bestest friends. We're so like minded. I'm raising confident children, which is something that I really had bashed out of me growing up. Um, confidence can be such a negative trait sometimes. Um, and I've loved the freedom alongside my husband to be able to grow two children in that way, if that makes sense. And um, so I just love the, the like-minded company. They make me laugh every single day. Israel's new word is honey. So at the end of everything, are you okay, honey? Have you had your breakfast, honey? We've never said honey in our lives. I don't know where she's got it from. Um, but yeah, just, just the like-minded company. It's a sad thing because you kind of spend less time with your friends. Um, but I just, yeah, I love to be around them. I really do. Oh, well, Africa, thank you so much for your time and for talking so openly about your experiences. We completely didn't get to talk about your work and how oh. <laughs> everything that you've experienced um, has affected your work. But maybe we can save that for an Instagram live. Of course, yeah. So, yeah, thank you so much again for your story and um, just maybe tell everybody where they can find you. Yeah, of course. Um, so we are on Instagram at The Vitamin D Project. Um, that's the only thing we're on at the moment. And obviously you can see us in person. We go to as many events as we can. Always trying to support like-minded mums doing similar things. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. And um, I'm going to be keeping on following and... Um, yeah, let's keep that Grenadian connection strong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <woo>, thank you. <laughs> so that was Africa, also known as the Vitamin D Project on Instagram. Go and follow her. You will not be disappointed. And for more from us, please follow at All Our Mothers or visit our website at allourmothers.com. See you next time. Mm-hmm.